This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you and a whole lot of other people need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by all my co-hosts this week, Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University, Jessica Luther, author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas, and the whip-smart Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter and founder of the amazing newsletter on women's sports, Power Plays. We'd like to issue a trigger warning before beginning this episode because we will be discussing death and sexual assault. On this episode, we're going to try our best to grapple with the tragic deaths of Gianna and Kobe Bryant, who died in a helicopter crash on January 26th, along with John Altobelli, his wife Carrie, their daughter Alyssa, Sarah Chester, her daughter Peyton, and Christina Mauser and Ara Zobayan. Kobe Bryant played 20 seasons with the Los Angeles Lakers. He won a lot of titles and a lot of games. He is the NBA's fourth all-time leading scorer and won five titles with the Lakers. In 2003, Bryant sexually assaulted a 19-year-old young woman in Colorado who was outed and ultimately settled in a civil suit. In the years that followed, Bryant went on to father four girls, rehabilitate his image, and finish his career as an icon of Los Angeles. He became very active in his daughter Gianna's basketball team and a regular attendee at women's sporting events. The outpouring of grief from fellow athletes and the public at large has reinforced that Bryant meant many things, many different things, to many people. This week, my co-host reacted in a whole lot of ways. And so we're going to structure this discussion in three different parts. But the first thing that I wanted to start with was asking each of you your reactions and also to mention things that you've written or thought about or reflected on over the past week. Amira, can I start with you? Um, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm already crying. <laughs> It's like really hard to see images of Gianna still. Um, yeah, my uh, initial reactions were, I think, like many, is just like this this kind of disbelief, and it really felt very similar to, uh, I mean, for me, the day Michael Jackson died, like the way that everybody just kind of stopping and trying to curate information that was really poorly reported on and you know we can talk about the mess of the the actual breaking of news but 
after that kind of washed away, then there was an outpouring of tributes. And then the hagiography machine set in. And then there was a lot of feelings around survivors. And I think all these things, for me, really jumbled together. And I've spent the last week really thinking through them and, and trying to process what it looks like to grieve and to be angry and to have have unanswered questions or ambivalent feelings around somebody in life and then what happens to that in death. I mean, that's, that, that was just kind of my initial, yeah, that's what the last week has been for me. And I just want to mention that Amira had a beautiful piece in the New Republic um, titled The Incoherent Legacy. And so Amira did eventually throughout the week pour that into something that I think is really beautiful and worth reading. Um, Jessica? Yeah, I just will echo a lot of what Amira said. I was deeply confused at first. I was in the, I was not on my phone. I was watching a live show uh, when the news broke. So at intermission, I looked at my phone and I had something like 45 text messages. Like 40 of them are from y'all. But still, it was just out of context stuff that I just didn't understand. And then it, I don't know, it's so shocking. He was only 41. He died with his daughter. I'm with Amira. When I think about the three young girls that are on the helicopter, I feel very sad. But I knew instantly, like once it had been confirmed, like once, what's his name from ESPN, Waj, had confirmed that Brian had died, I knew that it was going to be messy in the wake. I will say I never had an emotional connection to Kobe, the basketball player. Like I didn't, I didn't understand what an impact he had within the league. I didn't understand what he meant to Los Angeles. All of that was kind of surprising to me, like the level of it. And I know that it's all heightened because of the tragedy of his death and dying with his daughter. But still, I mean, you know, the crowds at Staples for like a couple of days uh, were surprising to me. But I did know instantly that we were about to have a really messy and difficult conversation around how to think about him. And I will say for me personally, and I'm sure this is true for y'all as well, people contacting me mainly wanted to... It was mainly sexual assault survivors who wanted to emote in some direction that they felt was safe. And so that was sort of the first stuff that I had to really react to were were those people reaching out to me for support in that moment. So, but then on Sunday night, I think I spent just like an hour, like looking at pictures of him with his daughters and feeling deeply sad because they all clearly loved each other very much. and. That's as true as anything else. Lynn? Yeah. So I was in Connecticut last Sunday. In the morning, I was at a USA basketball practice for the USA women's team. That ended around noon, uh, maybe one. And so as I was going back to the hotel after having interviewed, you know, Diana Trossi and Sue Bird and all these people who are pretty close to Kobe – as I was on the way back to the hotel, that's when I started the news 
started to come. And I didn't really understand what was happening until I actually heard the news while I was watching a Maryland women's game on, um, that's kind of how I got it confirmed. The announcers said it on the stream. And I was in Connecticut to, to see the UConn versus USA women's basketball game, which was on Monday night. And it was overwhelming. I think every every part of those few days. And if it wasn't overwhelming for me, I can't imagine how it was for people who, you know, actually knew him. But I had written when he retired in 2016, a piece for Think Progress called The Legacy of the Kobe Bryant Rape Case. And that piece has become a cornerstone for me as I've written about other sexual assault or domestic violence cases in sports and looking back at that blueprint. And I did a lot of research for that piece and talked to so many people. So, you know, I had really recently revisited that time. And because I'd written that piece and that piece started to go you know, be spread around in the wake of his death. A lot of people, I'm sure, are reading it for the first time. You know, we, because we're a sports, you know, we've talked about Kobe. We've kind of grappled with some of these issues in this podcast. But I think a lot of people were thinking about these things for the very first time. So it was just, it was a lot. You know, my direct messages have been flooded for a week now with stories from survivors and the diversity of experiences that I, you know, there's been a lot of men, male survivors. Um, you know, there have been people, people from the only thing that connects everyone who's been in my inbox has been survivors, grief, and confusion over like what to feel. And so, as I was kind of dealing with that and weighing these stories that I feel honored and blessed that people trust me with. I was also at women's basketball. And as we've discussed on this podcast, you know, Kobe has been mainly because of Gianna, he's become such an advocate for women's basketball and he's become a friend of the game. And that's a, it, it was, I would often view that through a skeptical lens. His support of the sport often felt really performative to me. I often felt very bitter about the way that the media, you know, we would have the media cover his comments on the game, but not cover the game itself. And, you know, that was always, that was hard for me. And uh, I wrestled with it. But I was at the UConn-USA basketball game, and Gianna had wanted to go to UConn, and she had wanted to be a WNBA star. So I, I wrote this in Power Plays a little bit, but how, you know, there are all these memorials for them going on around the world but this one felt different because this was, you know, the, a lot of the memorials were about what Kobe had accomplished, you know, and about the, you know, what had already been, whereas this was so much the future that both of them never got to have. And the more people I talked with and the more, you know, tributes that flooded out on Instagram from women's basketball players, the more I realized how important Kobe's advocacy for the game and Kobe's support for the game had been and how genuine, you know, these legends felt it was, you know, both Super and Diana Taurasi told me Kobe doesn't fake anything. Like, you know, none of this was just for show. Like he, it meant so much. And 
Um, you know, Renee Montgomery went on a big, she gave a great statement just about how much like he put the women's game on his back and that she felt like this was a loss for all of women's basketball. And so I really did a lot of through that, a lot of sorting through my feelings and it became more complicated because it would have been easier almost if I had felt that it was fake and phony, you know, and all for show. But the more I realized how genuine it was, the more complicated, you know, my feelings became. And, you know, the the thing I keep coming back to, and the thing that I know, you know, Amir wrote in her piece as well, and Amani McGee Stafford, a WNBA player, also wrote a piece for Power Plays. And, you know, the more I realize it's just, it's coming to terms with the fact that there's no way to balance all of this. There's no way, not, one doesn't cancel out the other. It just all is. And all feelings are valid. And I've just just kind of keep reminding myself of that and try and keep reminding others of that because it's been tough. Shereen? Thank you. I think like a lot of people said, everybody said here, there was quite a lot of shock in the intern, the immediate, no, I, you know, I can't believe it kind of thing. So that, that was very much what I felt. Now, it's coupled with a lot of things. And I'm really glad I went after Lindsay because I certainly echo a lot of the stuff she says in that there was, I'm angry at Kobe. I'm still angry. I'm angry because I felt that loving women's sport was part of his redemption arc. And that made me mad. And I felt that it was disingenuous. That being said, to see that juxtaposed with the pictures of his family was really hard for me. I mean, there's other very, very personal reasons that I have issues with Kobe in terms of, you know, and and I'll be quite honest, like working through family issues, working through very personal, you know, marital issues, um, despite what had happened. And, you know, me having this thing of, and I'll just lay it out that I wasn't able to do that. So there's this lens that I look at it also as a human and as a failed person, like as someone who's flawed and go, well, wait a minute. Then there's also me as a sports fan who loved Kobe when he was 24 before Colorado. I used to love his threes. I used to be like, I want my children to play basketball like this. Then, you know, that whole thing happened and I was furious and I knew the way the media would spin it. I'm also was very angry with media and that continues to this day and we'll talk about this more. Another thing that came up with me is having a daughter who's a teenager and who grew up watching him play. Well, I mean, to a degree and watching clips and montages. My daughter was actually interviewed for a CBC Kids news piece and talked about how hard because as an athlete, who often is in places where fathers aren't supportive as much as they could be to see that really affected her. And then me working through my feelings and my children know very well about the work I do. And I wrote a piece that actually made it into best Canadian sports writing in 2017, being very critical of the way media people were, you know, all about Kobe when he retired and how he was sort of immortalized and, you know, his, there was this massive erasure of what had happened. So, I mean, that's something that was very important for me and, and something that I I've said before, I will die on this hill, you know, about the way that media glosses over things like this. I mean, you've written about Ronaldo and, you know, I just, there was a lot happening, but to get back to my kid also watching her mourn, 
and her mourn for different reasons and me having to say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to, it took me a couple days to realize that I could be angry. I could be really devastated by the deaths of these people. I could be so wholly saddened and I could be confused and I could be all in those places at the same time. That took me days. I was a mess last week. And, you know, thank my co-hosts and particularly Amira for like talking to me through this. You know, it's been, and, and other friends I've leaned on, and I didn't know him personally, but I was, I'm still surprised at how much his death affected me. I'll just say for myself briefly, because I, I also didn't have a personal connection with Kobe or LA, but I do think there's something about such a sudden and tragic death of an athlete, like one that seems so infallible and was younger than me. And it just really reminds you of your mortality and, you know, keeping people close and appreciating the time that you have because sudden things like that just remind you that it's all sort of a, a thin thread, you know, very thin line between here and there. And I think that in itself is just something very human anyway, regardless of the way that I felt or didn't feel about him. And then there's also this real deep and genuine connection between, and it's not the only kind that parents and children have, but certainly parental connections around sports, probably just like music or dance or whatever, but there's something really sort of physical and freeing, especially in this moment of like digital stuff and trying to like yank your kid's phone out of their hand and something you know physical and playing with them when they're teenagers I have a 13 year old my daughter's the same age as Gianna and there's something just really special about that that's touching and impossible not to see um no matter how much quite honestly um I felt conflicted about Kobe Bryant Okay, so for the next sort of segment or or segue, and we've already touched upon this a little bit, but we did want to focus more specifically on Gianna and her teammates and youth basketball girls, WNBA. We've already done a little bit, but I wanted to have a fuller discussion where we focus on them. Shireen, do you want to do you want to talk about that? Thank you. One of the things that I did in the latter part of the week when I was able to pull myself together in some ways is is very therapeutic for me to do this big mom energy. So I started reaching out to players I know. Um, it's no surprise to anyone who listens to us that I'm a you know, Yukon Huskies fan. I consider myself very generously to be friends with some of the players on the team. I got to know them when I went there. <laughs> I got to know when I went there. But I reached out to a couple of them. And when I saw that Gianna loved Gabby as a player the most, that hit a lot because Gabby is one of the most awesome athletes I've ever known. Her drive, but also her sensitivity, her humor, her Twitter feed is quote unquote political, so to speak, you know, in those terms. And she's just, she's a wonderful person. But just to reach out to know and a couple of the, a really good friend of mine, Batuli Kamara, plays for UConn, and that connection to see how they were doing, and to see how they were feeling because they were extended families to this young player. And you know, 
they mentioned, they mentioned, I know that in, in a lot of their tweets and in their Instagram messages, they mentioned all the girls. And I think that was really important that they were so intentional. It was Gianna, Alyssa and Peyton. It wasn't just Gianna and it, it wasn't just Gigi. And that was really, really tender and beautiful and sincere. And, you know, I, how hard this is, I mean, watching Sabrina Ionescu ball her eyes out, like you want to just wrap her in a hug because she's so clearly grieving and there's no way for these athletes to grieve privately anymore. They can't. Social media can be great, but can also just, you know, be a lot. And I'm just praying for them. And as far as the girls go, the young girls, being a mom myself, I I don't know. I think I'm thinking about Vanessa Bryant a lot this week. A lot. Because I can't I can't imagine. And um, I thought her, we'll talk about this later, but just from the kids' perspective, these young athletes, and that's something my daughter and I talked about, is my daughter being 18, though, saw herself, see, goes to a game every week, twice a week, goes to practice. And the idea of going and coming home safely is such a blessing. And there's so many athletes, young athletes who do this and saw themselves re- reflected in these young girls. They go, they travel, they put their bodies, you know, out there, their their passion, but they also travel and what that looks like. And if they had, you know, my daughter had a showcase yesterday at a university and she had to drive to get there. And I just kept checking in. Are you okay? Are you okay? Because she was, there's some trepidation and a bit of hesitation about going because, you know, it's winter, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that was coming up for her. So there's just how much so many young girls are seeing themselves reflected in these young athletes. It's a lot. Lindsay? Yeah. So Katie Lou Samuelson, um, another former UConn player who was also on Team USA, talking with her after that game on uh, Monday night was probably the time I broke down the or. I, I didn't let myself break down until I got back to the hotel, but um, she broke down and I wanted to read what she told me kind of about getting to know Gigi personally. First, I will say there was a beautiful tribute to Gigi at the UConn game. They left a spot on their bench. They put um, her number two on a UConn jersey and her name and um, there were flowers on the bench and it was a beautiful tribute to someone who dreamed of playing at UConn. But this is what Katie Lou told me about Gigi. She said she was really shy the first time we met her. And then slowly, each time, she got more outgoing. Kobe always talked about how, how on the court she was a different person. She was a monster. She was a mean, and she and she had an attitude just like he did. And she kind of laughed when she said that, but you know she was crying, and then she just said she was just a beautiful soul and a person I was lucky enough to meet. So it was clear that Gigi's energy, Gigi's presence, just had such an impact on everyone that she met. And Gino Ariema, the head coach of UConn, told this wonderful story about how they would come, Kobe and Gianna would come to UConn and all of the UConn players were starstruck over Kobe. <laughs> and then Gianna was starstruck over the UConn players. <laughs> and, and 
And uh, and Gino would be like, how is this? Like, your dad is Kobe Bryant. You can meet anyone you want. You meet celebrities all the time. And yet you're starstruck by these, you know, female college athletes. And I just, I love that so much because that really goes to show how um, passionate she was about the game. And uh, Gino said Kobe would ask him for like coaching tips and stuff for coaching the daughters. You know, he really got into coaching. As Diana Trossi said, you know, Kobe didn't do anything halfway. <laughs> you know, if he was going to do something, he was going to do it. And so I, I really loved learning more about Gigi. And of course, it was devastating. I mean, just just the fact that they were all on the way to a game, a, you know, a game they never got to play. And as I grapple with all of this, and I wrote about this on Power Plays, but I just said, I think that the best way going forward for to honor Kobe and Gigi is to support women's sports and women's basketball in particular. And maybe that sounds self-serving since we know I love the sport, but honestly, this was the this was the next part of their legacy that they never got a you know that, that they didn't this was what was cut short you know Kobe's NBA accomplishments you know will live on forever you know his playing days like those were so important but we don't know what could have been in women's basketball for Kobe and Gigi and you know I think everyone owes it to kind of keep keep that going no matter no matter how you feel do it do it for Gigi. Amira? Yeah, one of the things I was really struck by is, well, I found it very irresponsible that people were putting cameras and mics into these kids' faces at the Mamba Sports Academy. Frankly ridiculous, but one of the things that I found really powerful in that moment was a lot of the little girls who were in shock kept saying, we looked up to both of them so much. and in her short time already, Gianna had such an uh, impact on even girls coming behind it who looked up at that team and at her as, as, a, as a source of inspiration. And I really held on to that in thinking about what it means to not only have an investment in the women's game and the women's basketball one of the things that really impressed me about the work that they were doing through the sports academies was uh, investment in youth sports, particularly to defray the cost of participation when necessary. And I think youth sports is a really fraught terrain that sometimes gets overlooked. But in this moment, I was able to see that there was a real kind of deep investment in, in the early growth of a game and in thinking about how impactful that is for for a little girl there to not even be looking all the way to the top and, and at somebody like Tarazi, but somebody like Gianna and how that, even that small kind of act spreads, spreads the game and spreads opportunity and spreads visibility significantly. Um, and that's what I kept returning to. And, and I really wanted to also take a moment to talk about Alyssa and Peyton and their teammates were um, present at the Staples Center on Friday night when the Lakers uh, did a big tribute. Um, they were there courtside 
And I'm thinking just what it means for a team to lose three players. And they were all very close. And, um, and their assistant coach, Christine Mauser, was, uh, by all accounts, very tenacious. And, um, they, they said they called her the queen of defense. <laughs> and, uh, they said that, uh, Kobe never knew how to play zone defense because he never had to play it. <laughs> and, and so when he started coaching the team, he had no idea how to coach them to play defense. <laughs> um, and so Mauser's um, husband gave this really heartbreaking when he talked about the story. And so they, um, they, the two of them, a husband and wife, uh, used to coach the, the, the team at the school and she was really the better coach. And so once Kobe met her and, and realized how good she was, particularly in defense, he, he was like, I have to have you. I ha-, and he hired her. And the fact that they were going to a game just has stuck with me. And so I think about all three girls and I think about their coach and I think about just how, 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 what a sm- impact they had in a small amount of time. But what was cut short for all three of them is a really tremendous loss for the basketball community. But I, I echo what Lindsay says. I think that it's also in, instructive about um, investment and the possibilities of of making making visible uh, what's possible in the women's game from a young level. Jess, ah, uh, yeah. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about how oh, I learned to play basketball. I don't know, when I was 11, and my dad taught me, and then I played for my middle school team for a few years. Uh, sorry, give me a second. And, like, when I interviewed Laisha Clarendon for this podcast, and we talked about periods, <laughs> I think I said on there, like, one of the first real discussions I ever had about my period <laughs> was with my basketball teammates in seventh grade. And it feels really weird to be crying as I'm talking about this right now and just thinking like how important those girls were to me at that age and how close we were. And we were just like a shitty (laughs) middle school basketball team. Like, I mean, I can't imagine what those girls are going through. That's just, it's so sad. It's so sad. Uh, I will just say... If I had my way, that I really, really wish that the thing that could come out of this, as Lindsay said, is that that their legacy would be that people would care about this sport and these athletes the way that Kobe and Gianna did. I was really struck by how many female basketball players had pictures and videos with Gigi. I was really like reading about all of the games that Kobe went to that, you know, he wasn't just showing up for the finals. So like they were genuine fans of the game and they showed up all the time. Um, It would be really great if, if that was the thing that could come out of this tragedy. So just to touch on that a little bit, there was a really beautiful story that came out of Brazil this week. 
there's been a lot written about Kobe Bryant's relationship with Latino LA, which was a really important aspect, I think, of his representation of that city to a lot of people. But it also all around Latin America, um, he was seen as like not such a provincial U.S. star because of his time in Italy and his appreciation for Messi, which might be the only thing that we shared. And um, in Brazil, there's a game with animals and the number 24 is a little deer. And none of the men's players for like, I don't know, all time immemorial will wear 24 because of homophobia, because the word is also a slur about gay men. And um, it was really amazing this week because of all of this like emotional mobilization and recognition of his importance in Latin America. Um, the Brazilian team, uh, well, from Bahia, uh, decided that they would um, have number 24. And Nene is one of their stars and is going to wear the number 24, which has never been worn so far as I know in a men's professional game in a top division Brazilian team to sort of use that to fight homophobia. It's kind of mind blowing to be quite honest with you. Um, I should say the women have, have always had a 24 and that's something else, but this really mobilized a whole bunch of people to take the love that they had for him or appreciation and pull this into this soccer moment where they were like, okay, you know what? 24. Okay. Let's do something with that. And I thought it was really beautiful. Okay, now I want to um, shift gears a little bit and just uh, talk one more aspect of this. And of course, there's like uh, many, many more. But I did want to ask my co-hosts about their reaction to the media treatment of this great tragedy. I wonder if things have gotten any better in terms of integrating these complicated life histories, sexual assault, policing of black grief. I don't know, whatever you all sort of came away with from the media coverage, I, I'd like to hear uh, your, your, your thoughts about that. Shireen, could you start? I'm mad at the media for many things. And this part about media will be more so on the constant fuck-ups this week. I was really, really affected by, I had a low-key crush on Rick Fox for a really long time. Not really low-key, because you know nothing about me is low-key. But he was falsely declared dead by media, like very prematurely. And his family found out and called him. And one he said in an interview that one of his children's fear is to find out that their parents have died through social media. And so they talked on the phone, he took the time, and he had a son who died. And even finding out that TMZ reported, you know, the deaths of the people in the, in the crash before the families were fully notified. I mean, there was a family on the helicopter that whose children are the only ones that are left. And I think that imagine how often teen teenagers are on their phones and to find this out would be shattering. And there was a, there's a huge, we all know media and reporting is a very tough business. It's cutthroat, but this whole push for being the first one 
to, to, you know, announce this is so ruthless and irresponsible. And there's constant reminders from journalists to say, be thorough, make sure you have your, you know, information down pat. And that was, that was a really big thing for me. I was really upset about seeing that unfold. And as someone in sports media to watch that and, you know, I, tend to be extra cautious. I'm usually, and, and this is from my own era. I've retweeted stuff in the past. I mean, nothing this profound, but that wasn't reported like, you know, accurately. And then I t- to hold accountability for that and say, listen, I was wrong. And, you know, it's really quick to press RT, but think about it, hold your thumbs, think about it. The other thing that I've been really, really livid about was the BBC. They had a montage about, they had a montage of, and I thought about putting this in the burn pile, but I thought we could weave it in. The BBC had a montage about Kobe Bryant for which they replaced him with LeBron James. And I saw my friend Morgan Campbell tweeting about this. I'm like, what, what's happening? And Morgan's comment in the tweet, we could quote Tuda was like, you know, because they all look the same. They have their names on their jerseys. How hard is they, this? And they don't look the same. <laughs> they, they, they don't look the same at all. <laughs> There's nothing. There's n- like, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't even talk about it. I'm so mad. And this goes to show, and many, you know, black sports journalists were tweeting this. Like, look at the clear lack of melanin in your newsrooms. Like, this is a mistake that is so obviously done by people who are not of color, not black, whatever. Like it's, it's so embarrassing. It is so, so fucking embarrassing. So that's my relationship with the media was rough. And thank you so much. Amira, your piece made me cry several times. It was gorgeous. And Lindsay, you're, you know, even we get behind the scenes. I'm going to flex a little. We get behind the scenes in power plays too, because of our relationship with Lindsay and the work you put in and, the conversations you've been having this week with Imani and stuff like there've been parts of media that have made up for that. I mean, they've been, we'll talk about this further and I'll, I'll pass on, but I'm just saying I was really, really pissed off this week at two different points. Jess. Yeah. So I didn't, my reaction to a lot of this was to avoid most of the media coverage of it. Cause I assumed that it wasn't going to handle the stuff around his sexual assault very well. I will say that, as Shereen just said, Lindsay's power plays this week were very good. Amira's piece is amazing at the New Republic. Lindsay was on Hang Up and Listen. Is that correct? Hang Up and Listen on Monday. It's a podcast. Um, I loved that whole episode. Uh, Joel Anderson, Gene Denby from NPR, um, and then Stefan and Josh. Uh, I thought it was like one of the best all-around discussions of Kobe, both as a player and this legacy that he's leaving. Um, and I like appreciated that Gene was willing to say like, he didn't like Kobe as a basketball player <laughs> like in that moment. Um, it's just a really good discussion. And then Lindsay was on one of my most favorite podcasts today explained um, along with um, Zito Madu talking about all of the stuff. And those are the things that I listened to. And I thought all of those things were done well, but I picked them on purpose because I, I knew based on the people involved, that they would be the kind of discussions. And I think all I really want to say, I have, you know, I could, I had talked about this a long time, but I think the biggest thing for me 
there are so many ways that that case from 2003 represents the way that we as a society don't handle these things well, um, that it is really such a, and sadly so, like such a good example of what we call rape culture. And I feel like this is yet another moment where it becomes this microcosm, this like perfect example of how we deal with this is bad. And because we fail so spectacularly at public accountability around these issues, because our societal reaction is to constantly ask for two things, either that we ignore it or that we push it down the road. Um, When it comes to a head and it is terrible. It is a festering wound that boils over. And I was angry in the moments when people were saying, we shouldn't be talking about this today. Because my initial reaction, just based on all the work that I've done, is like, well, we weren't allowed to talk about it yesterday either. And we weren't allowed to talk about it in 2016. And we weren't allowed to talk about it in 2005. We weren't allowed to talk about it in 2003. And And it was so hard because it's such a tragic loss and he died with his daughter. um, And that is what it is and will always be. Um, But it is once again, and I can't say this enough, sadly so, just became such a good example of what happens when we just don't deal with this stuff. And, And I'm sorry, I'm going on. But like the last thing that I will say that makes this all very complicated is that his whole persona, this nickname, this Black Mamba, was a direct reaction from Kobe to the rape case itself, that that was how he was going to publicly move forward after everything that came out in 2003. And very few people that I saw really acknowledged that. And it was all Mamba, Mamba, Mamba. And every time I hear that, that is one of the things that I think about, that that's where that came from. So I just think we're not good at this. And once again, we weren't that good at it. We're, I think, better. Like I could, there were places I could go and I knew where to look for them. And I'm thankful that that exists now. Amira. Yeah, I know. Like exactly what Jess said. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's, it's so true though. And I tried to write about that the the mamba narrative especially when i wrote my piece because of for the reasons that just said but also um it's always been curious to me that what started out as black mamba as a way to separate his on the court presence from his off the court uh kate rape case morphed like and i don't know when if people remember a lot of his sponsors left in the wake of the case but nike did really actually what they had done with Colin Kaepernick was just put him on the bench. So they never actually severed a contract, but they just weren't using him. Um, and at, when sponsors started to return um, and after a few more you know, championships, that Black Mamba really became deracialized and branded. And... And then, of course, as we know, now it's Mamba and there was um, shoes, there was a sports academy, there was a partnership with Nike that had the Mamba Sports League, um, and then, of course, a Mamba mentality. Um, win, train hard, you know, love the process, be ferocious, 
and I couldn't stop. I couldn't, as Jess said, disentangle that. And every time I saw a picture of the girls wearing Mamba jerseys, it was this reminder. And I and I wrote in my piece the kind of cruel irony of people who who say leave it in the past we've all moved on and not while saying hashtag mamba forever and not even realizing not even knowing um or and not caring that that very thing they were insisting on leaving in the past they were carrying with them all the time um and it's that court sort of uh is that sort of uh, glimpses into the places that rape culture have, have muted the conversation so much that we lose sight of the reverberations. Um, and there are many. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that was certainly full, fully on display this past week. Lynn? Yeah, I think, First of all, it's there were a lot, like as Jess said, there were places to go to get nuanced coverage. But it, it's important to remember that the main places, ESPN and CNN, and the main you know stations, that wasn't a part of their main coverage of this. And I'm not saying it should have been or it shouldn't have been, but I'm saying it's important to keep in mind that a lot of the reactions on social media or, you know, in these more nuanced podcast discussions were kind of a reaction to it being left out of the, you know, it being included in, you know, some of the first um, reactions I heard is that Colorado stuff, you know, or, or just being very euphemistically dismissed. It was a tough week on social media and among I have a pretty curated <laughs> Twitter list of people I really respect in this industry. And there was a lot of disagreement among people I love about who can talk about what, when. And I, it's something I grappled with a lot. And I don't know that I did anything um, right about it, but, you know, I saw, Two ends of the spectrum, right? I saw people who were so focused on the rape case that they didn't think that they thought that should be the first thing, right? That they thought that that should be the main thing everyone was talking about and kind of questioned the grief of others. And I found that off-putting, to say the least, and performative, I think. And... Then on the other side, there were people I really love and respect who were saying, this is absolutely not the time to bring up the rape case. If you are, if you're bringing it up in any way, you have an agenda and you're policing, you know, our grief and this is unacceptable. And I also thought that was wrong because listen, as someone who's written about this before, I've been told every time I've written about it or brought it up that it's not the right time, you know? Like, there's there's never a right time. And part of the reason why this was so hard to, hard to grapple with when he passed is because we never grappled with it properly when he was alive, you know? 
Um, the media moved on. There wasn't a reckoning and it was, this was it. And so I think that that's, it's been, it's been really hard. And I saw a lot of white women completely dismissing the pain of a lot of the black community. And that was horrible. At the same time, I saw a lot of people say that, you know, even, you know, that if any person survivor brought it up that they were, you know, being racist. And that's not true either, you know? So I think it's just, there's this middle ground. And the way I decided to go with it was to make sure that I was never, ever saying, because I was grieving, you know, I've been grieving all week. And just to make it clear that I thought there was room in this conversation to talk about the sexual assault, but that that didn't mean there wasn't, that it was the whole conversation, that it was the beginning and the end, that anyone was, you know, that that nobody had a right to be upset. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I'm always very aware that I'm a white woman talking about um, a black man. And I, and when people, I, somebody asked how this week, somebody asked me, how do I, you know, do I not take it personally? Um, when I'm being getting the amount of death threats and everything that I was getting this week. And I just say, like, I understand our country's history. Like, I try and do this in a responsible way, but I know that I am always going to be, I understand why people don't want me to talk about this. And like I said, that obviously hasn't shut me up, but I do try and do it in a respectable way, but it's complicated. And there are times I think I shouldn't. And I don't know. Sorry, I'm just I'm rambling right now because it's it's just um it's been a it's been a weird it's been a I think a tough week for everyone and I think you know Amani McGee Stafford said it in her piece which she wrote you know just that there has to somehow be space for everything you know that they're just you have to let everybody grieve in their own way and for some people that's going to be more focused on the sexual assault case. And for some, it's going to be more focused on the NBA and some it's more focused on Gianna and it just, everybody's going to grieve in, in different ways. And the only thing I really had a hard time with this week was when people saying other people's way of grieving was completely wrong. And I saw that coming from both sides and it was tough. Shereen. Just to say off that, I did not write about Kobe this week and you know, somebody who's a freelancer and who likes getting work and who needs work, I decided that I wasn't the right person to talk about it. I just sat back and I read other people and I just, I don't know, I, for me, it was the right decision because I had to put my mental health first too. And there were so many other things I didn't expect to be dealing with that I was like in terms of my own reactions to this. So, you know, and I think those that did, because the amount of spoons that that took were a lot and that I didn't have this week. So, I mean, the whole point of this is there's no right answer. You have to try to do what's best for you. Amira? Yeah, certainly. And I think, I think Lindsay hit um, the nail on the head um, when she talked about the, how fraught it was because of the way that people were trying to shut down um varying grief processes and I think a great example of that of course well like a horrible example but like um was the Washington Post if you uh 
I don't know if you recall this week in in the wake of the news. Um, what's Felicia's last name? I just forgot. Felicia Samez at the Washington Post just retweeted a Daily Beast article about um, Kobe's rape case, and she didn't add any commentary to it. She didn't even quote tweet it. She just retweeted it and just shared the link. Um, she just shared the link. Yeah shared the link she just shared the link and was flooded with um what we've all become accustomed to uh when when you death threats rape like just awfulness um and she started talking about the awfulness that was coming into her email and her mentions and the powers that be at the washington post reprimanded her and then suspended her moved to suspend her citing what did they say at first what they were citing like what is i think eventually they landed on yeah she posted posted a a screenshot of her inbox i don't even think the email address was in there anyway exactly but it was very clear that it was a cover for you know what they saw as ill-timed tweets that were damaging as they said quote unquote the, the whole institution Thankfully, the Felicia, her colleagues at the Washington Post had her back and put out a statement saying that this was, you know, wholly unacceptable. And luckily, um, enough people were able to raise their voices around this. But I think it was such an example of simply linking to a factual piece could have, especially without kind of a further interrogation of the incident could have cost her her job, could have cost her pay. Um, and that is that is a, a glaring example of how it's not just like muted conversation, but institutionally um, it's cutting off these discussions. And the, the last thing I want to say is that the tributes that the way this affected, I think, Black millennials and, and Gen exit whatever's right before millennial was really powerful to me to see this kind of collective wave of nostalgia and and um the sister sister cameos and how much he meant to the younger generation of basketball players um and it was this moment of i think collective black mourning and there's only you know it was like when prince died or whitney or you know it it's this moment in which it feels like a a collective, a collective mourning of somebody who, in all their complexities, reflected and meant a lot to a whole generation of Black people growing up in this country, um, and I think that was really powerful for me to see in something that I was wholly unexpecting. <laughs> um, but the early reactions from players who couldn't even stop crying and and everybody thought the NBA was going to cancel games and it was just another reminder of an organization that purports to be like all about family etc cetera, etc cetera, um but also wanted those ticket sales and so i think that as much as it was about the interpersonal dynamics i was really interested in how institutions played a large role in curating um how you could grieve and what forms of grief were were acceptable and what the kind of performance of mourning um, looked like. Um, Yeah. Okay. 
So on that note, I think we're going to move on. Now it's time to throw all the garbage in sports this week onto a metaphorical burn pile and set it aflame. Unlike the New York Times, all that's fit to print, we're angling for all that's fit to burn. Shireen? It is Black History Month, and I'm mad. Not at Black History Month, (laughs) but I'm mad because I'm I'm mad at media because media is ridiculous. So everybody, a lot of media places have their tweets ready to celebrate performatively black athletes and TSN is no exception TSN the sports outlet in Canada I am mad TSN so basically they had a tweet about black history month of these you know phenomenal Canadian black hockey players basketball players whatnot the only thing that they forgot to add in the athletes were women there was no women at all because you know y'all know that there's no women athletes in Canada who happen to be black what Ugh. Anyways, Megan McPeak is a sports journalist and called them out so much that they redid the tweet. But do we really need black women to be doing that labor to remind you that y'all are ridiculous? Like, is this how this is going to play out in 2020? Like, really? And it's not as if you didn't have, I don't know, 11 months since last Black History Month to prepare this tweet. I just, I, I you know, Angela James is one of the most foremost incredible people, black woman hockey player this country has had, and we're so lucky. You really, really didn't have Angela James? Really? Anyways, I want to take that and that reflection of what's in their newsrooms and who is not present in their newsrooms. I want to more metaphorically take all of that and throw it on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Yeah, so in good news, it's been the Australian Open, um, and it's been very fun to watch. And the young American, uh, Sophia Kennan, won the women's tournament, and she's 21 years old, and there is – she's been around the tennis world forever. Like, I don't know how they got her into all of these events, but um, she's – like, there are all these clips of her being, like – five six seven super young and around all these star tennis players and they're one of the photos is her with anna kornikova well uh darren ravel the sports business gambling reporter whatever he is who is mainly just a tool online decided to tweet the photo of kornikova and kenan when kenan was a little girl and a photo of kenan um, as the Australian Open champion. And here's his tweet. He said, the girl on the right made millions for her good looks on the tennis court. She was never able to win a major in singles. The girl on the left, taken some 16 years after this photo was taken, accomplished what Anna Kornikova never did. <laughs> Sophia Kennan is your Australian Open champ. What in the world is the sexist garbage that you, A, you're like pitting these two players against each other, B, Yes, Anna Kornikova made a lot of money off her looks, but she was also a good tennis player and made millions from playing tennis. She was in the top 10. Like, it's not like she was ranked 300 in the world and that was it. Like, she was, she she earned money playing tennis too. Um, Injuries cut her career short and obviously she made a lot of money from uh, modeling as well. 
But like, why? Why is this necessary? This is just such crap. <laughs> I just, and he deleted the tweet, but he defended it staunchly online. He kept saying he only deleted it because it was Super Bowl weekend and he didn't want to have to deal with trolls. So he was, <laughs> that's the only reason why he de- deleted it, but that he completely stood by it. It wasn't a bad tweet. It was just a true tweet. It wasn't sexist. And that's, he's going to go to his grave saying that. So just like burn that bullshit. Burn. Burn. <laughs> oh. Amira. Yeah, so... This week, (laughs) leading up to um, a UFC fight, uh, Joanna Jedrzejczyk, who is a Polish UFC fighter, uh, posted on Instagram, on her Instagram story, the fight poster from her upcoming match against reigning strawweight champion, um, well, uh, Wiley uh, Zhang, also known as Magnum, she's the first Chinese UFC champion, and so uh, her competition took this image of their fight poster, put it on their Instagram, and then edited it to add a gas mask and and um, a few emojis in reference to the Wuhan virus currently affect killing people, affecting large parts of China and and uh, places all around the world. Zhang, who is the first uh, Chinese UFC championship, uh, champion, responded to this and said, to make fun of tragedy is a true sign of one's character. People are dying, someone's father, someone's mother, someone's child. Say what you want about me if it makes you feel stronger, but do not joke about what's happening here. I wish you good health until March 7th. I will see you soon. And the person's response was like, oh, I'm sorry. It was just a meme. I'll still fight you on the 7th. Just don't get too emotional about it. And I just think it's such trash. One, it's super racist. And I think that one of the things that happens, we saw this happen with like Ebola, for instance, is that we racialize disease outbreak. And this is a clear example of that. And altering a photo and thinking it was just a meme, but only like it's so blatantly racist and also blip for, as Zhang said herself, for people who are fighting this and losing their lives and really scared about this outbreak. And I wish there was a way that we could work to help disease outbreaks and not racialize them or pathologize them or or you know stigmatize like this is awful and for your competition to uh turn that into a meme because you're from china oh i i hope she kicks <laughs> her ass in march but until then um, i'm gonna burn it down burn. Burn. Yes. Yes. So by the time you all hear this, Super Bowl 54 will have been over for days and either the San Francisco 49ers or the Kansas City Chiefs will be the latest NFL champions. I will, I'm just going to start by quoting our own Amira Rose Davis from episode 89, quote, we've done a few episodes on indigeneity, but because they're so baked into our sporting culture, it's just, you forget that the Chiefs are playing at Arrowhead Stadium with tomahawk chops and headgear until you see them on primetime. And then it's like, we're doing this for real. Yes. The answer is yes. We're still doing this and nobody cares. 
I'm not going to rehash what's wrong with Native mascots right now. We talked about Native mascotry extensively not that long ago, episode 128. Lindsay interviewed Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation and an activist against the Washington, D.C. NFL team's use of a racial slur back in episode 33, if you want to hear it directly from an expert. Also, there was a great op-ed in the New York Times just this last week by Tara Hauska titled, My Culture is Not Super Bowl Entertainment. But I do want to point out that this particular Super Bowl hurts beyond the inclusion of the Chiefs and the Tomahawk chant. Because of the way in which this country teaches itself its history, the white men who stole indigenous land as they pushed west have been written as heroes. James Rawls, a historian, said this to PBS's American Experience, quote, Most people are not aware that California was the most diversely populated region within native North America. Nowhere else was there a greater number of, or variety of cultures as there was here in native California before the Spanish, and certainly before the coming of the gold rush. The gold rush, of course, is where we get the nickname the 49ers. The History Channel has a piece about the impact of the gold rush on native peoples, and it is titled, quote, California's little known genocide. According to this article, quote, in just 20 years, 80% of California's Native Americans were wiped out. And though some died because of the seizure of their land or diseases caught from new settlers, between 9,000 and 16,000 were murdered in cold blood. The victims of a policy of genocide sponsored by the state of California and gleefully assisted by its newest citizens. Our collective celebration of those men erases this history. And so for the 49ers to face off against the caricatured Chiefs in a sports game watched by something like 100 million people is shit, honestly. The Super Bowl hasn't aired yet, as I'm saying all of this, but I'm guessing that none of this will be acknowledged. And instead, in its place, we will have our violent white nationalist president wrapping himself in the so-called patriotism of this event. It's disgusting if you spend any time thinking about it. And finally, I'll just point out that the Super Bowl was played in a place called Miami. The area was originally inhabited by the Tequesta people, whose way of life was massively disrupted by the arrival of the Spanish in the late 16th century. By 1763, there were only 80 families left. Having been killed by disease, slavery, and violence with the Spaniards and other Native, Native peoples whose resources and land were significantly reduced because of European colonization. I'm feeling confident that none of this will be addressed on Fox later today when the game is played. So I want to burn the way the NFL and U.S. culture in general continues to erase and even mock Native people, even as it uses them. Burn. Burn. I have the special privilege of getting to burn the New York Knicks' Marcus Morris's comments following his team's 127-106 to loss to the Grizzlies at home at Madison Square Garden. In it, Grizzly Jay Crowder made a late three-point shot and was pushed really hard by Alfred Payton. When asked about the brawl, Morris said of Crowder, he's got a lot of female tendencies on the court, flopping and throwing his head back. He's soft, very woman-like. This is the classic using woman as an insult. It's both homophobic and sexist, pretty basic. Players like Liz Cambage of the Las Vegas Aces expressed their disgust with the comments. Cambage tweeted at Morris, female tendencies wins games, though. (laughs) A reference to the fact that the New York Knicks also suck. In addition (laughs) to all of this, Morris apologized, of course, after being fined $35,000 from the NBA and said, quote, I really don't have a choice, end of quote. So you can tell that his apology is is deeply felt. 
And then, of course, if if you doubted his apology, since he doesn't have a daughter, I guess, I'm not really sure about that, but I'm surprised he didn't say I have a daughter. He said, I'm a big, huge supporter of the WNBA. I have relationships with a few female players in the WNBA. If I offended any of them, I deeply, deeply apologize. <laughs> that's a new, ver- that's you a deeply, new version deeply of the I know a everyone. woman. Wow. That's a what? new version of the I know a woman. Right. It's a new version. And um, this is becoming more and more common that we see the WNBA as a sort of, you know, screen for I can't be sexist because I love them. Barf. And you didn't just offend them, you offended all of us, anyone, anyone who recognizes the the way in which this is both homophobic and also misogynist. So I want to burn Morris's comments and the persistent and pernicious mindset that being a woman is being weak, that femininity is detrimental in pressure situations, and also the way in which misogyny and homophobia are always wrapped in together. And I want to burn your lame ass apologies and flippant use of the awesome WNBA as a shield. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, let's celebrate some amazing accomplishments of women in sports this week. Katie Sowers, former guest on the pod, has become the first woman and openly gay person to coach in an NFL Super Bowl. Yay. Woo. <laughs> 21-year-old Sophia Kennan, who won the Australia Open. Team Iran, who won the CAFU U19 Girls Futsal Championship. Congratulations to Marl Torkaman of Team Iran for being voted the most valuable player at that tournament. Vala Devi is the first Indian woman to be signed in a professional European women's league. The Rangers, a Scottish team, have signed the Indian Phenom in an 18-month contract. She has had 52 goals in 58 caps and scored more than 100 goals in a domestic league. Cindy Nawelkoy, the first woman to referee a Chilean men's first division game in history, Unión Española versus Iquique. Sabrina Ionescu, who extended her NCAA all-time record with career triple-double number 23. And can I get a drum up? <laughs> Canada's Christine Sinclair has broken the former record holder Abby Wambach's Super record of 184 international goals with 185 international goals, a record in global football. Shireen would like me to acknowledge her as the Prime Minister of Canada and um, any other really amazing uh, sort of accolade that we could find for her. She is amazing, and her humility in the face of winning this record was all the more touching. In dark times, it's always nice to reflect on what's keeping us going this week. Lindsay. Uh, yeah, so as you know, different as my trip to Connecticut ended up being, it was good to see USA Basketball and UConn compete. Every time I get out to a women's sporting event, it gives me a little bit of life. 
And I had a little meetup and got to meet 10 Power Plays readers. And most of them also were Burn It All Down listeners. So I want to say hi to all of you. You really made my day slash week slash everything. Because, you know, you work from home and it's just so nice to connect with people who are listening or reading because it often feels very uh, like, <laughs> just like there's just such a divide, you know, there's so little interaction. So yeah, I think that was, that really kind of um, made my week and just everyone who's been supportive this week, especially, I think it's just, I mean, the first people when I heard the news about Kobe that I reached out to was this group, you know, this, this podcast group and just having you all in my life. It's just, um, it is such a blessing. Shireen. My what's good is so fun. On Friday night, I went out with a couple of friends of mine, Sarah, Sharina, and Amna, and I actually went to my first Bollywood drag show, that it, which was amazing. And um, we kind of walked through around, and um, it was my birthday last week, and Shireen and Amna got me this beautiful book called Miss Mary Reporting, and it's actually this true true story of sports writer Mary Garber. Now I love children's books and this is a really beautiful story about a gay woman who reports on sports in the 1940s. So that's just really special to me. Um, I've also been enjoying family and have a lot of family stuff happening this weekend and a busy week coming up and I'm just really excited about it. Hot Docs is happening in Toronto so I'm going to be attending some things there with my friend Sabrina and I'm really excited about that. I'm doing a workshop on um, Life Without Basketball, the film with Bilky Sabilkadir with a bunch of high school students on Tuesday. And this episode will be out by then. But I'm also very, 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 very grateful for my bio Burn It All Down co-hosts. I love you all very, very, very much. And this week would have been absolutely, absolutely just, you know, insurmountable if it wasn't for you. So I just wanted to say that. Jessica. Yeah, so... I totally agree with Lindsay. I was very thankful and you guys were absolutely part of what was good for me this last week. And I feel a little awkward at this point saying this now that I just did my burn, but I'm going to a Super Bowl party today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I haven't been baking recently. I just haven't had time. And, um, but I baked for this party today. I made a chocolate cake and then I made these fun confetti cookies. Um, they weren't. They didn't taste quite as good as I wanted them to, but um, they're really fun to look at. And so that was nice to bake a little bit. I've been reading a lot, and I have just been loving that. And Aaron and I finally started watching the second uh, season of Sex Education, and I just love Eric so much. That character on that show just like brings Yay! me endless joy, just endless joy. Eric, yes. bless you. You are so wonderful. So that's what's good. I'm just going to go next because I'm also in the second season of Sex Education. Thank you, Amira, (laughs) for giving me a nudge. Um, And I love Eric, but I also love Maeve because she's so much like me in high school. It's so funny to like revisit and be like, oh, little B. (laughs) So cute and problematic and interesting, the whole cast, really. Also, I'm just appreciative for leaning on friends this week. Not, I mean, not to belittle Kobe at all, but that wasn't so much it, but a whole lot of other stuff. And everybody showed up for me. And um, whenever I text anyone or need anything, I feel like people have just totally 100% been on. I also want to celebrate the fact that my kids, after so many years, 
have decided they're willing to eat school lunch sometimes. (laughs) 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 You have no idea how meaningful this is for me. Like I'm sort of weepy because um, (laughs) it's like three meals a day for their whole lives, at least and endless snacks. And I just like, I'm so tired of making school lunch. I can't tell you. And in the summer it doesn't change because the camps don't do it and they won't eat camp lunch. So I just feel so, um, it's so nice sometimes on Fridays just to be like, do you want to buy? And if somebody says yes, I'm just like, yes, I get another cup of coffee and get to just sit down for a sec. So that's good. (laughs) Amira, take it away. Yes. Uh, Well, I echo what many people talk about, about my what's good this week is, is about friendship and support. I really didn't realize how affected I would be by the stuff. Plus, it was overlaid with uh, many other, you know, personal things going on. But it just was one of these weeks that revealed to me what a kick-ass kind of group I have around me. My co-hosts are fucking amazing, and they're encouraging, and they're inspirational. Um, I have colleagues, I have like really dope colleagues. Like I've been doing interviews for graduate school prospective students, like two full days where you're just sitting in a room doing that. And yet, like I had a great ass time because my colleagues are great and it doesn't always happen. And, uh, I just, it was a week where I just was, um, immensely grateful for all the people in my life who, who I, I adore. And also shout out to my editor, Katie at the New Republic, who's just, her unwavering belief in my ability to like find some coherence <laughs> from like seven through seven days of me being like, I don't know what I'm saying was just like, it was phenomenal. And then also I'm, I'm recording this from a hotel room in New York. Um, me and Samari came in to see dear Evan Hansen for a birthday. We were seeing it with Jordan Fisher, who, if you know anything about me, you know how much I ride for the melanated people on Disney channel. So uh, <laughs> Ever since Jordan Fisher was in that one circle of life commercial years ago, I've been following his career. And it just so happens that this weekend was his first weekend stepping into the role, the title role of Evan and becoming the first black Evan in this production. And so me and Mari were there and we saw him and he was fantastic. Not exactly like the uplifting show that you see at the end of the emotional week, but it was really spectacular. And so, and we, me and Mari do the stage door thing. So we got to meet a lot of the cast after we had a really good time. And after I record this, we're going to go to a escape room. Because of course you are. <laughs> exactly. And uh, well, we're just going to have a good time uh, taking New York together. So uh, that's what's good for me. And that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Though we're done for now, remember you can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting you a, a mug uh, with our enraged faces on it? You can check it out at https, you know, dot, dot, back, back, teespring.com, backslash stores, backslash burn. What is that thing? Dash it, dash all, (laughs) dash down. (laughs) I'd also like to send out a huge thank you to our patrons for their generous support. 
And to remind people about our Patreon campaign, if you become an official patron of the podcast, um, in exchange for your contribution, you get access to special content and awards. And we are just so grateful for all of your support. And we couldn't do it without you. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. As always, try to burn on and not out. <laughs>